This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180 TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 240, Zach Smith on Real Adventure, humanitarian work that makes a difference. Hello and welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Kurt Linville. Hey, I've got a great guy on the on the horn here today to interview for you. This is Zach Smith. And Zach grew up in the Los Angeles area, and he got involved working with firefighters. And that developed into all sorts of amazing things. He was a firefighter for about 16 years. And he really got into tech rescue and eventually became a paramedic. That led to humanitarian work overseas in Nigeria, which started out in 2012. And that's going to be the main focus of our show today. The adventurous side of humanitarian work, where you get to do kind of the adventure travel and engage with people and make a difference in the world. So I'm really excited to visit with Zach about that. And about a year ago, Zach started Core Third. So some of the needs that he saw for humanitarian work in Africa led him to coming up with some solutions, and so we're going to visit about that, too. Really neat stuff. Zach, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, man, it's my pleasure. I want to talk about humanitarian work, but first, let's kind of get a little background on who you are. So you grew up around California. What's your what's your story there? Yeah, so definitely a Southern California kid, um, like uh, North Orange County, South L.A., Long Beach area. Um Really was part of the surf crowd scene, played water polo and swam, and was really into aquatic sports and stuff, uh, even into high school and in college. Um, and that led me to, to just to getting into lifeguarding uh, for L.A. County. Um, as you mentioned, I was got into emergency, emergency services really young and, and fell in love with, with that type of organization, um, literally, you know, saving lives every day on the beach and and um, being part of a, 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 an amazing camaraderie of watermen and women. And I, it, it really started a foundation for my career. Um, so years earlier in high school, I, I had um, gone on two uh, humanitarian missions, uh, building missions with a group called Teen Missions and uh, T-E-E-N uh, missions. And uh, they're based out of Merritt Island, Florida, and uh, went, I went to Israel in 94 and then Nepal in 96. And uh, that really gave a foundation of service uh, to me that I really have not turned back from. And uh, an, an adventure, like travel paradigm and really like learning new people groups and, and new experiences that I just was, it got in my blood and I couldn't get away from it. So that really has carried on to today. Oh, that's really cool. I had the the blessing and the honor to do a little bit of that work years ago, and it was a life-changing experience. So I, I really believe in it, and that's one reason why I wanted to have you on the show, so you could share that with our listeners. Adventure travel is awesome, and I think travel is very, very valuable on its own accord. Just seeing how other cultures operate in interfacing with people in other places and and seeing the world and connecting with that is so valuable. But when you can actually go the next step and make a difference in people's lives, that's even better. You get to engage with the people even more, and you're making a real difference in the world. So how cool is that? It's really the coolest. I mean, uh, there's um, there's definitely like a, a selfish side of, of this whole humanitarian work that I love. I mean, I, I love the travel, the going, the the deploying, um, the camaraderie with the team, that sort of thing. But it, it so blended in such a perfect way with giving at the same time. So you have this super amazing connection with the people group you're working with, um, and uh, if it's done in the right way. And um, there's this connections that you'll have forever. Uh, like I, some of my absolute closest friends are from Nigeria. And, uh, yeah, because we, we turn service together and we, we work together and it's just amazing. I love going back there. Um, I'm considered 
part of that the, the group down there in Ozu, the, the, fa- the family network, and it's just wonderful. Wow. Yeah. So tell us about Nigeria as a country, as a landscape. What is it like? Well, so uh, Nigeria is a pretty rich country, actually. It's quite um, prosperous in terms of the African nations, um, that, especially the area around Lagos, and, and it's a huge metropolis. Um with a lot of money flowing into it, a lot of production. I mean, there's just, there's a lot going on and, and you have a, a people group that is as a whole that in this, in Southern Nigeria, the Ibus are an incredibly industrious and, um, entrepreneurial, uh, people in general. You've probably, uh, had a, a phone call or some type of, uh, uh, some type of scam going in the in the future, <laughs> but you know, originating in Nigeria, and um, and that really is, I, I think, uh, what you tend to see is a real industrious people group. People have a ton of inger- energy, and uh, uh, but there there still is a lot of lost um, uh, people in terms of services. There's just not. There's not a lot of in south, southeast Nigeria where, where I work. There's there's really um, an underserved people group in general. Um, there, when, especially when it comes to medicine and infrastructure and um, gosh, just all you know, water, power, um, medicine are the huge things down there that are lacking. So um, that that causes some real. Um, uh, you know, social economic strain and, uh, and hope, and we're down there hopefully helping them fix some of those problems around the cities we work in. So, yeah. Oh, that's cool. So is Nigeria, I've not been to Nigeria, so I'm just going to play dumb here. Is Nigeria more like a savanna or a jungle or temperate climate? What are we talking about? Yeah. So we're, we're right North of the equator. Um, the equator, I think, runs through Gabon, which is about 600 miles to the south. I, I, I think I'm right in that. Um, so we're we're north of that, uh, but right on the equator. So uh, quite jungly. Um, kind of interesting. I've worked in um, in Burma in for a long time, and uh, the same stuff that grows in Burma and the jungles in Burma. You think of Burma as a really jungly place. It also grows in Nigeria. So you have like like, uh, uh, mangoes and, and coconuts and, um, just incredibly good bananas and plantains and just all the stuff you, you'd think in a jungle climate. Yeah. It grows there. Um, and incredible. I mean, the mangoes there are just absolutely the best. The pineapples just, just not Hawaii's pineapples out of the park. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're better, I think. But, uh, yeah, so it's, it's a cool, a really amazing climate. You know, you have rainy season and dry season. You don't really, really have the winters like we have. They're just wet versus dry. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just a uh, that northern. Uh, um, yeah, but savanna. You're right. It's more of a. They, there is savannas too, um, as you go a little bit north of where we are, and then to the east you have um, definitely just that sub-Saharan uh, desert start. So yeah. You know, I think for a lot of people in the West, it's just a kind of a landscape and a climate that not many of us get to visit and experience. So it probably takes some adjusting. It does. It, I mean, it, it's hot a lot of the times we go. We, um, I, mean, so I usually go in June or through September, that area, and then again in December. Uh, and those times of years are, are qu- quite hot. You're, we're always dealing with temperatures between the 90s and 100 uh, with good good humidity and um so it takes uh, generally for me about four days to get adjusted to that to the the climate and then where i start feeling okay and and <laughs> i i equate it a lot of times to altitude you know when you're in this hot these hot climates you, you kind of feel like you're at altitude for a while you, mm. you know you, you're kind of slothful and, and uh you don't want to move too fast and all that so it's that same type of thing but you're hot instead of cold and then hard to breathe so well, how did you get started doing humanitarian work there? Yeah, so um, I, I started humanitarian work in general in, in my adult life in, in, let's say, 2010, right after the earthquakes in Haiti. Um, 
I um, I went down with a group called Team Rubicon, or we are we weren't actually a group at the time. It was just a a bunch of veteran uh, veterans. I wasn't one of the veterans, but they're taking um, firefighters and and uh, and vets at the same time, and like coupling them in these teams to go work in Haiti right after the earthquake. So um, we did an amazing. Some amazing work down there, and uh, raised a lot of money just just from people hearing about what we were doing. We really didn't even ask; it just all of a sudden a ton of money came in, and we started this organization called Team Rubicon. And uh, it's it's they take uh, vets and put them on now the domestic disaster fields so here in the United States, and then they purpose vets into those roles working within a uh, volunteer disaster cleanup stuff. Um, at the time I was running, uh, you know, after Haiti, I started running their, um, their medical teams internationally, uh, and became their director of operations and really got into, to humanitarian work in, in the medical sense, um, and started to learn it. And uh, yeah, we grew it, and now that organization is around forty thousand members and going strong. But uh, you know, I, I I fell in love with a couple places on the globe that I started working at really, uh, really diligently, and uh, stuck with them. Um, and started working in with the with uh, the Karen and Sean people group in in Burma that were really struggling against the um, for freedom against the communist government. And then um, in South Sudan, where um, we helped establish a hospital and run it for a couple of years uh, before the civil war started. So, um, yeah, and then I, I then in Nigeria was another spinoff project of Team Rubicon that um, that started because I, I had a, a friend named James uh, Imakwe that I got to know in in Washington D.C. and he he was from Ozu. And he uh, he asked me to help design a clinic for his hometown there in Ozu, Nigeria, and we did that. And uh, in 2012, and we raised the funds, had it built, started sending containers of medical equipment over that were donated, and uh, we ended up and running. We've we run um, you guys 19 uh, medical teams there now, so 19 different missions of U.S. Uh, medical teams. So it's been pretty successful. Wow, that's so, great. Yeah. So why would you encourage other people to consider humanitarian work as a part of their life? I I don't know if I would. <laughs> I mean, it it's it's definitely a uh you either have it or you don't. It, it's and you know, I I still rub shoulders with a lot of firemen and Either I've noticed you got either have it or you don't. Either it's in your blood to do this stuff, or it's not. Um, I would, and I don't. I don't ever push people to. Hey, you know, like, come with me. I'm, I'm all like, hey, I do this. Hey, if you ever want to go, you know, it's open to, to you. Um, because I really want this. You know, this whole idea of of going and helping is something that's that's innate. That it's either a dream you have, uh, a calling you have. Um, so I just present it to people, and if they they're interested, I say, "Hey, we have an outlet for you to do that." But uh, yeah, I, I I love taking students. I'll tell you, that's I think that's been our, our biggest success. Is um, I've been taking nursing and medical students for the last couple of years over there, and that is the most rewarding thing I do. I, I love seeing this this this. Uh, spark in them early on in their career for a career of service where they know they can take their vacation time from either, you know, nursing or, or being a doc and come over and help. And we create that outlet and it, it really stays with them. We have a lot of returning students now that are practitioners that work with us that have been with us on prior missions. It's really successful. Oh, that's cool. So tell us about yeah. your clinic that you built over there. Yeah. So, um, the clinic, as we call it, upon this rock medical center, um, it's it's really not that big. Um, we have, gosh, it's about seven rooms. Um, we have uh, a an OR in there, a theater, a surgical theater. Um, we have a trauma room that we bring in the critical patients to. We have a bunch of of uh, meeting rooms or just clinic rooms you can come and meet and meet a doc in. Um, and then, 
a receptionist room with a waiting area and that sort of thing out front. And um, it's really well built. It's really cool. James is an engineer. The guy I, I, I work with, James McQuay, he's a civil engineer. So he, he really built this thing like he builds roads, just really sturdy. Um, and it's, it's well put together and, and uh, it, it's, it's a good place. Um, so we, we also have an ambulance that I built a couple years ago, 2014. And sent it over there. We took a Toyota Sequoia, a 2004 Toyota Sequoia, and we transferred the all the equipment and and fixtures from a leader ambulance, which is the ambulance we use on the West Coast here, and we put it in this this vehicle, this Toyota um, Sequoia, and uh, and then beefed up the suspension a little bit, put a light light bar on it, uh, and made it look like an ambulance and sent it over. And, and it's been it's been doing quite well in the dirt roads around our hospital um, going up to, we have 28 different villages around our hospital. We're able to, to access with this vehicle um, and put on deworming clinics. Uh, we take portable ultrasounds up there f- to check on, on uh, mothers who are having babies. Um, we, gosh, we, we do, you know, obviously emergency stuff with it. Just uh, people get a hold of us just over cell phone. We go out and, and do the classic emergency stuff. And then, um, and then we can now transport patients that need a higher level of care to our, to our sister hospital, um, two hours away from us. That, that, that is a federal medical system center that has, um, like a CT scanner and, and some things, um, that, that we don't have. So, wow. Yeah. You know, I'm catching a a kind of a theme here that, you know, you started helping people on the beach as a kid, as a, as a lifeguard, and you connected with it, and over time, it's grown into this. Wow, what an organization! And how many lives are you impacting there in Nigeria? That's crazy. Yeah, it's fun. It, I tell you, it's a blast. Um, it's it's hard. It's not just. I, I like the struggle. It's not. It's definitely not easy. Um, um, you're dealing with just a place that has limited resources. Um, Sub-Saharan Africa is fraught with problems, no matter where you turn. But I, I, I love that. I love the challenge and, and the. Gosh, I'll tell you, the people are just so real. So it's just this is when you talk to somebody, it's what you get. You know, it's just right in front of you. It's just no beating around the bush. I love the culture. It's and um, and there's just this amazing synergy between uh, the Abom region that we're in and, and, and our organization. And that's the biggest thing that I love is just the people. So, yeah. Wow. Well, let's talk about the adventure flavor of this a little bit. So for a while you were flying around assisting with surgeries out of a Cessna, right? Yeah, that was interesting that we did that with team Rubicon, um, a couple missions and it was, um, we went with the doc, some docs from, um, George Washington university. Um, and really at the time it was the only way to, reach some of these places inside of, of South Sudan central in Central African Republic was to fly there. <laughs> really, it's, it would be uh, weeks and weeks to actually drive to these places if you could even get there because the roads are so bad. Wow. So we had a, a, a surgical suite pretty, pretty much inside of our airplane, uh, the, the equipment, so we could take it out, find a, find a, a room that was somewhat clean and and set up um, sterile fields and lighting, and and um, and we had some some equipment, and we were able to set that up and, and work with our doc um, at the time, Doctor Gilhead, and um, really did some great work. So beyond beyond clinic work, because we all did did that work too. So um, I remember in one of the places we we worked that hadn't seen a doctor for a long time, a place called Pibor, South Sudan. It's um, there were a thousand plus people lined up just to see us mm. just, and, and just everyone. I remember every woman I saw had a, had some type of, of uh, pelvic inflammatory disease because of, uh, you know, uh, an STD. Um, wow. and, and if you think about it, and where that came from is, is, um, from a recent war with, uh, with North Sudan where they used rape as a, uh, as a weapon and re- and, and, and these diseases ca- over time cause women to be sterile. 
so these women were pleading with us. They wanted to have babies and they couldn't. It was just the worst. And and I, us being there in short such a short amount of time, the therapies for that would take a long time. And and uh, there are some some uh, microsurgeries you can have to to get the scarring out. But we just didn't. There was no way we could do that. Wow. So it was uh, it was a very sad situation. I'll never forget that. Um, I think it's real easy, yeah. you know, for us in the West where we have easy access to medicine and where war really hasn't been uh, a recent occurrence, right? It's it's yeah. easy for us to not know what life can be like in some of these places, how tough it can be and some of the hardships that people face. It's it's heartbreaking. Mm. It really is. Yeah, and to think, well, that, you know, we were there 2010, 11, 12, um, since then, the whole that whole region is in a civil war. Um, the hospital I worked really closely with um, in Bor, in, in a place called Bor, um, the the patients that uh, at this hospital when the war started, they were all uh, murdered in their beds. Oh. Um, and the Dr. Ajax, a guy that I'm very close to. Uh, that was working at the hospital at the time had to run with his family out, out in the bush, uh, run for his life. And he's a Canadian citizen and, um, Canadian special forces came in about a week later and picked him up, um, after they were getting cell phone messages from him. But, um, he since came and worked with us for, for about a year in, in Nigeria before it was safe for him to go back. Um, but, uh, yeah, inc- incredible guy, incredible. So he was actually one of the lost boys, um, that came early on to Ethiopia and were part of that UN program called the Lost Boy Program. That ended up coming to the United States, and he ended up getting a a, um, a medical degree in Canada. Um, so, r- r- interesting story within itself. He, he's a movie can be made on that guy. Bentgate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for the last 20 years. Winter is in full swing, and it's prime time to check out the latest in alpine touring, telemark, NTN, and split boarding gear. Bentgate carries the premier brands, including Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Rocky Mountain Underground, Rosignol, Solomon, Voli, Never Summer, and Jones. With more people in the backcountry than ever, it's crucial to be prepared. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear from beacons to airbags. Come in and they will set you up with the proper gear and point you in the right direction to educate yourself on snow safety. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment, including the latest skis, boots, split boards, beacons, shovels, and probes. Bentgate also hosts free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a hands-on opportunity to ride the latest gear. Be sure to check bentgate.com for their full product selection as well as updates on all of their events. The Bearline Plus by 180 Tech is the handiest bearline utility cord system you can find. This is not your typical bearline. Our lightweight cord system is designed to be compact, lightweight, frictionless, and very versatile. Don't risk losing your dinner. Hang it the right way. The Bearline Plus is designed to suspend food between two trees up to 40 feet apart and 15 feet above the ground with much less effort than other bearlines. Not only does the Bearline Plus keep your food away from bears, it is designed to be useful for many other needs including a motorcycle and ATV recovery system, tie-downs, straps, backpack repair, guy lines for tarp or tent, a tow line, block and tackle, and much, much more. Find your Bearline Plus at 180tech.com or retailers near you. You know, you tell me about a thousand people lined up just in one location looking for help, and everybody has a real story to tell. Yeah, yeah. You know, and then you mentioned this doctor from that area that that got his education went back to serve, and, you know, there's so many stories. When you start engaging with people like this, what what amazing life experiences you have. Yeah, you mentioned the adventure travel part of it, you know, that... um, 
you know, it, it really, it really, when you're you're dealing with this in this type of realm, humanitarian medicine, it, it is an everything's an adventure. You don't see it at the time, but you look back and you're like, wow, what did I just do? You know, it's uh. Yeah, you know, on that trip, spending a month in the back of a Cessna, those two different months. You know, we, I mean, we were and at the on the heels of of Joseph Kony at one point um, in Central African Republic. We had uh, we flew into a town, um, and I forget the, the exact one at this point, um, where Joseph Kony had been there a month before, and we were treating uh, some wounds made by oh, by his boy. machetes. Uh, a month before, and even ran into a a military, a U.S. military team that was was a hunter team for him, and uh, and their medics ended up working with us for a couple of days. So that was just super super interesting, mm. work, working shoulder to shoulder with those eighteen Delta medics. Um, but yeah, there's it, that's. I mean, I just came back from. I just talked to you when I came back from Nigeria and was stuck in this airport in Port Harcourt for two days where. <laughs> There was like these mini riots going on, like all around me, and fist fights, and like, and here I was feeling the angst of a Nigerian who couldn't get out of their own airport, right? Wow. And yeah. Just you know, in the same strife they're in, and, and feeling it, and living it, and uh, it, that really was an adventure in, in and of itself. But uh, just getting to OR to, to you know to work the booth at, at OR last uh, couple weeks ago. But <laughs> anyway, it's. I love the adventure travel part, and that's one of the reasons why you know I, I went in that direction of creating gear for it because um, we you know we had some great ideas coming out of that. And, uh, oh yeah, no doubt. That, so. You know, the best way to have a great idea is to look for a need and then find a way to meet the need. And man, when you're traveling around Africa working in these conditions, you see a lot of needs. You know. Oh yeah. So yeah. man, there's got to be an endless supply of ideas. <laughs> you know, and if, if necessity is a mother of invention, then uh, she must have a million children there in Africa. Oh, and and she does. The ingenuity is incredible. I, I just in I just saw a a solar lamp that I'm actually looking at recreating that I saw in a uh, in a market in Nigeria in 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 um, Ozo bomb, and it was just such a simple like this PVC lantern. I was like, oh my gosh, that is so simple and so straightforward and and uh, you know i want to give this guy royalties but I, <laughs> who made it but i don't know who he is <laughs> he's just a it was it was a great idea so yes all that stuff's all over from like you know figuring out how to carry water better to uh you know uh, fixing a bicycle which is some of the most rudimentary wires and and uh and and uh you know having nothing but but fixing things you know fixing generators that way or motorbikes or I'm just, yeah, you're right. I've seen it all over. That's, so. It's so cool. And, you know, people people figure stuff out, and the ingenuity is really fun. It, it's fascinating when it's not done for them, how they figure out a way to get it to get it done, right? Yeah, you know, and that's you're, – you're so right. And that's what I see in um, the adventure sports, the your, your adventure nomad within the United States. You and I talked about this a little bit at OR. Um I see living the life of, of a surf bum and uh, you know a ski bum and and uh, a lifeguard living summers on the beach and stuff out of a van. I I saw this connection between the lifestyle I, I lead I, I've I've led and still try to lead sometimes as a weekend warrior now. Um, but um, and then the, your sub-Saharan you know. Uh, family that that may may live 10 or 20 places within their life you know they're real real migrant in the way they live um in general and i, I see this connection there's like way that we fi- that we figure out life when we're kind of we take it to an extreme we take it to its end we don't we don't live with a lot of luxury um we have either we're put there on purpose or because we love it or we we're, we're there because we have to be there there still are these same problems that need to be solved on either end um and it, it's really um really fun to see that and, and and to live with it and around it so yeah yeah hopefully this stuff is a little bit better than all the contraptions on gilligan's island huh 
Yeah. <laughs> Gilligan, yeah. Gilligan <laughs> pedaling the bamboo bicycle to generate electricity with coconut shells somehow. Can't everything be taken back to Gil- an episode of <laughs> at some point? <laughs> I think they addressed everything, didn't they? Yeah, they did. Yeah, that's funny. So I got to ask, I, I got to fly over Africa, you know, on a commercial jet. But you got to fly for extended periods over Africa in a Cessna, so you're closer to the ground and landing on, I imagine, some amazing runways. Um, what was that like? Oh, I, I tell you, it was really one of the best experiences of my life in terms of uh, you could not have a better um, immersion travel experience than, than than I'd say the first mission I had there. Uh, the first mission we weren't allowed into Central African Republic because of what was going on with uh, um some American uh, missions to hunt Joseph Coney, um, where our second one we could. Um, and so we, we were divert, we, we just, we were stuck in this place called Yambio. Uh, and we're like, okay, well, what do we do now? And we had, you know, three more days left in, in, um, uh, that we had the Cessna for, and we've, you know, we've, we've pretty much hit our contacts in South Sudan uh, we're thinking, oh, I guess, you know, we could go try to you know, work ourselves into another clinic somewhere that's already operating. But, you know, we didn't have an itinerary anymore and we, we were set on going into, into Central African Republic and we couldn't. So we were just, we, we, we sat around for, for, for two days in this, in this, uh, airport as a bunch of these South African mercenaries were, were running by us and these mules and uh, these vehicles called mules. They're, they're crazy. Um, you know, they're crazy unimog looking things. And, uh, and I'm, I'm just like pulling my hair out. I just want to get into central African Republic. So finally we, we call index on this whole thing. We're like, you know what, we're, we're going to, we're going to go do something. So we all put our heads together and we're like, let's go down to, uh, let's go down to a safari park and just have, you know, you know, the last two days of our trip, just, just have a, a good time. Like let's debrief this whole thing. Cause we were just dirty and, you know, at our wits end. And so we fly into Masai Mara in our own Cessna, like where they filmed out of Africa. Right. It was just like, you could not have like a, a, a more like amazing experience out of it. So sometimes, you know, even though we've been living in, living in the dirt and at one point in Pibor, thousands of scorpions were around our bug nets, wow. uh, you know, like, cause they came out of the ground in the middle of the night, with sick and cool air. And then here I am the next day living in, uh, you know, a five-star safari hut, uh, <laughs> you know, in Masai Mara. So, so it, it was, uh, definitely, that was a cool, cool way to end that trip. Um, could never do that one again. It was just too, too many pieces had to fall together, but, um, yeah, that was a cool experience. And the, definitely the Cessna part of it are, we, we flew with, um, uh, African Inland Missions, um, and one of um, one of the pilots actually donated his his vacation time to fly us around, so it wouldn't, wouldn't be as expensive because he he believed that much in what we were doing, and that's how different even like some, the mission groups he works with in East Africa, how like far and beyond this group, our group was was going and doing stuff uh, medically that that other groups like don't do. He was that much behind it, so. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was an, a, an amazing time. So, yeah. So what inspires it, you, Zach? You know, you're, you're out there doing a lot of stuff. It's gotta be exhausting. What keeps you rolling? Uh, a couple, you know, you and I touched on a little bit, but, um, like definitely have a, a strong Christian faith, um, that I, I think is an innate, um, drive for, uh, seeing, uh, human nature in, in, in really a, a, a rudimentary way, you know, you know, needs that, that need to be fulfilled and, and, um, kind of this, this fulfillment that's beyond me personally, but a spiritual fulfillment that everyone needs on top of that. Um, and then in the center of giving in that it, it, it has a regenerative aspect in myself, um, where it's almost like a drug. I, I gotta tell you, it's, uh, you know, being in the midst of of that and knowing that need that there's one more patient that I could treat uh one more life that could be saved it's it, it's definitely a, a something you get hooked on um and 
And the, the other aspect is they're the best friends you make are the people that you work alongside with. And over the years that, that I've never had stronger bonds with, with some people that just the most amazing people that would, would be willing to do this type of stuff. So, um, I almost, I almost equate it to like the whole, uh, I mean, it's kind of been overused, but the, the whole matrix thing where, you know, you really see the world for what it is by taking that, you know, that pill as he did in the movie that made him see behind the, (laughs) behind all the, the, the matrix. Right. But in, in a way there's this, this part of the world that, that we in the United States just, um, don't see that don't grasp the doc that I, I worked with for a number of years, Dr. Glenn Gilhood, he, he called them the, the bottom billion of the world, the way people really live. And you could see with Dr. Gilhood, he didn't actually come alive until he was able to, to really live. And he would always say, this is really living. Um, and, and he would like, he would love it. He did. He, he, he felt most alive. And I, and I do too, when, when I'm with, people that are, are living life just like most of the people in the world are. Cause I I'm here in Roseville, California. That's pretty amazing place to live. I, I don't think this is really living. Um, it's kind of this, this la la land, um, mm. you know, you know, when I, so. when I spent five weeks in Kenya several years back now, I thought that they would be kind of a culture shock when I went there. But the reality is, it was coming home that was the yeah. hard part. You got it. You got it. it. And that's, I think, is what you're kind of alluding to. You get home, you're like, whoa, what is this? Mm-hmm. How is it that I get to do this and live in this way? And, you know, that, that actually was tough. I had to do some soul searching. Yep. Yeah, I, I'll tell you, um, I've had some big-time problems coming home, yeah, like I, adjusting. Yeah. And um, especially especially after like going down to Haiti and stuff or just, just, uh, being part of the suffering. Um, you know, having, I remember one night in Haiti, uh, one of the nights before I left and we were, um, a good buddy of mine, Glenn Penson, who, uh, he's a, a, a fireman, a paramedic in Beverly Hills fire. And, uh, we were going around just giving out pain medication, um, out of these, these big, <laughs> big bottles, uh, and just like switching, you know, cleaning it, switching syringes, like giving pain medication to one patient and then go to the next patient, do an assessment, give him more pain medication. And we did this for hundreds, if not a thousand patients Wow! all night long. And they mm-hmm. all had broken bones, like all either amputated head, head wounds. Just, and there were, you know, it was in the worst of conditions and, that will never leave me that, that, you know, the night before just, just having to leave that because I was going to miss my flight. And that was like, I'd have to be there for another week, you know, it's, but right. I had to go, but I didn't want to. And that was a, this is a syndrome of the, you know, one more patient syndrome. If I could just treat one more patient, um, and that, you know, I always come back to that. I don't want to leave. I want to continue to be here. And then that, that transition home of like, why am I here? What am I doing? Why, why am I sleeping in a tempur bed right now? Like, come on, you know, this is cush. You know, why, why can I open my refrigerator right now and grab food? I, I mean, this, is, this isn't real. Um, and that's totally something I've, I've had to deal with and it, I still, still deal with and my family deals with because I mean, I'm not the nicest person coming home when I, I'm kind of, t- t- you know, processing this stuff. So, um, yeah, it's, it's real and that's a real thing for for you know, humanitarian workers and missionaries in general to deal with that stuff. Oh man, no doubt. No doubt. You know, I, I think a lot of our listeners are sitting here saying, I don't know if I could do it, but man, maybe I should try. What advice do you have for people who, you know, this, they're the people that, that they have it. Like you said, either you have this, this desire or you don't, but these are the ones who are saying, I've got to try something. How do they get started doing stuff like this? Yeah, what I've noticed, it's easier for younger people to do this stuff. And I would say if you're a younger person and and you have this bug, just do it. Just do it. Um, drop everything you're doing and go find an outlet to work with and go do it. If you're older, 
I, it really affects people like more when you're older. Like I say, like over thirty, it's like you start. There's a lot of things within your life that end up. This can start disrupting, um, emotionally, spiritually, and then like when you because you have family and kids, it's a real, it's a big investment more. So I, you know, I'd really take pause and and really consider you know why you're going and and know that what you're jumping into is is uncomfortable um is you know you're gonna have um not every not every medical mission or every humanitarian mission is perfect so you're there's going to be flaws there's going to be um interpersonal stuff going on within a team you're not going to always agree with certain things um you know that there's definitely uh it's definitely an adventure, you know, uh, every, every team you go on. Um, so really take stock of, of who you are, why you're, why you want to go. Um, this desire with inside you, where is it coming from? And, and, uh, you know, for your first one, make it a good experience. Um, so try to tailor that as much as you can, but it, gosh, if you're younger, it, it's really just, I, I just say go, <laughs> just just do it, and that's really where where I was early on, um, even in high school on those those formative missions, um, that really gave me the um, the outlook and the stamina, and to know to the mental stamina to to fulfill some of this stuff because it, it really working working in um, underserved people groups is one of the most f- frustrating things you could ever do. If, oh, yeah. if, if you don't have a, a really high threshold for that type of stuff for being in just like problems that are, are so hard to solve, um, you know, just, you know, being able to have to deal with government officials that just will not work with you or for you uh, to to supplies that are that are outdated or not working to generators that won't, won't work, the cars that won't start, you know, it's it's. Uh, you have to find that as as um, almost a fulfilling thing. Turn it around and say, "Hey, this is part of the experience." We have this saying that's like, "That's Africa, baby." You know, <laughs> when something like that happens. So, um, really take stock of who you are before you go. Do you love mountains? You are not alone. Jerry Roach is well known for his extraordinary and detailed guidebook, Colorado 14ers. But did you know that Jerry has written 15 books, including guidebooks to 13ers, Indian Peaks, Rocky Mountain National Park, and more? But he has also written narratives about a lifetime of mountaineering full of Jerry's insights and humor. If you like adventure, then these books are for you. Jerry Roach's books can be purchased at his website, summitsite.com. That's S U M M I T. S-I-G-H-T dot com, as well as on Amazon and in bookstores near you. If you're thinking about your future, think about Fort Lewis College in Durango, Colorado. Think a beautiful mountain campus where hiking, biking, kayaking, and snow riding are right outside your door. Think a friendly community buzzing with music, arts, events, and sports. Think faculty mentors, real research, and professional experiences that prepare you to both make a living and make a life. If you think college should be an adventure, think Fort Lewis College. See for yourself at fortlewis.edu. You know, Zach, I personally... Sleeping on a concrete floor with two-inch-long cockroaches crawling over me. People think that's hard. Going without sleep, eating strange food for weeks on end. People might say that's hard. For me, that wasn't the hard part. The hard part was encountering elephantitis and advanced malaria mm, and yeah. seeing what polio does untreated and yep. seeing people with such great needs. Um, that's. I think that was the hard part for me. And I, I don't know if everyone has what it takes to, to be in that, you know? It's tough. I don't yeah. know that I do, to tell you the truth. I don't know that I do. Well, so medical professionals in general, are, are they come across the same type of emotional thing, um, even in practice here in the United States. So that, that, that sort of, you, you can 
start, start to compartmentalize yourself in, in treating a patient, um, and get through it and feel it later. You know, I mean, we, we know how to do that. Um, and we're, we're trained to do that. And if you, if you're not, you learn how to do it real quick. Um, so, but I'll tell you, it's, it's, it's difficult when you're in a, a, a brand new environment, um, where you, you're not in like this, this nice hospital, you know, with, let's just say in, in, you know, any XYZ, you know, trauma center in the United States, um, where you may, you know, you may, you know, it, it, I, I've worked in transplant medicine for a number of years and, uh, uh, you know, had the most heart wrenching stuff in the world, but, uh, you know, I knew that I was going home at you know, eight o'clock at night or, or eight in the morning and I, there'd be shift change and, and I compartmentalize it. Hmm. But when you're living in it for like a month at a time plus, and you're, it's never, there's never a time for a shift change. Um, you're always with the same people that you were treating that patient with. So you can, you, you're always reminded of it. It, it does wear on you big time. Um, I think the biggest burdensome time for me in that, in that respect is when we were working South of, um, of boar in this leper colony, one of the only leper colonies on the, on the earth left. And, um, it, it was just, it, it was so sad because literally limbs were falling off of these people. Um, but the, the fact that, they were fine with it. And this is just how life was for them. And, and, um, we would treat their wounds and, and we would, you know, we would care for them the best we could, but no, life was going to go on like this for them. And there was no treatment. And, and it was, it was so gut wrenching. Like you said, that, that, I mean, elephantitis, that sort of thing. You can, you can work towards a treatment with that and, you know, leishmaniasis, that sort of thing. But, um, uh, but this was like so permanent with these, these, folks and they lived like they were back in the middle ages still and and it was um so so gut-wrenching i I think that's another another time that will live with me forever like that and the hardest thing for me to break away from that group i just wanted to stay there and just just treat their wounds forever yeah uh i did this i just felt such a draw and i'm so concerned about where that that um that group is now during that during the civil war i i fear that they're they've been killed um, or they might not be because because no one wants to go by them so it's it's either they might be the only survivors so who knows um I, i'd love to go and find out so well i'm sure someday yeah. things will change and you will find out but holy cow yeah. you know you're talking about where the rubber meets the road this isn't a made-up adventure this is real life stuff hmm. and yeah. It is adventurous. I mean, it takes a special something to put yourself out there like that. But I just got to say thank you on behalf of all these people. I mean, I don't have the right to say it, but I'm going to say it anyway, Zach. Thank you on behalf of all these people that you go out, the lives you touch, the difference you make. Um, it's awesome. Thanks for doing that. Well, I appreciate it. Um, but, you know, this is... <sighs> I, I would hope that we all do our part in some way. That I, you know, I'm part of... Uh a group of people that just get out and do good. Um, and this is just my calling. Um, but that others have theirs and they listen to it and do it. Um, that's so I, I hope, you know, you hear me and, and, and look inside yourself and just be like, okay, where is my calling and, and how am I going to get out and, and affect really good change in people. And, uh, I don't know. That's that's a thank you, but yeah, that's kind of what I'd like to say here. Yeah, awesome. So. You know, I got, I'm going to change the subject. We've got to talk about Core Third. <laughs> We're going to run oh, yeah. out of time. Yeah, core yeah. Third. So we did the episode that uh, where we interviewed several different people from Outdoor Retailer, and you were one of those interviews, and we talked about Core Third there, so the listeners can go listen to that to get you know another perspective. But real fast, you mm-hmm. said that you were having generator failures when you were on this airplane doing these surgeries. And you're inspired to come up with a product that could address this. And it crosses over from doing surgeries in Africa to having remote power for all adventures when you're away from the plug-in, right? So what is this? Yeah, so Core Third uh, came up from idea in, in 2011, 12 in South, in, in South Sudan, in Bor, where we're working uh, specifically, where um, – 
where our solar panels and and batteries actually one burned up um, because of a solar controller that failed, and um, and I was I like I vowed that I was going to solve this problem and I was so fed up with it. <laughs> <laughs> that there there needed to be better efficient solar panels because I saw them on people's roofs at that time and I was like, hey, if, if it's on your roof, I know it can work for me. So let's get to the bottom of this. So uh, we came back and and uh, I worked with a, with a, uh, some friends of mine who had some experience in that stuff and um, and I, I laminated a solar panel uh, the solar cells in between a hazmat suit um, and came up with this idea for for a, a panel that it couldn't be folded and it was like a cool casing for it and stuff. And they could also transfer the heat through the back of the panel really easily. And it wasn't this hard like, canvas stuff that's that's been out for a number of years that actually trapped heat in. Uh, and then we came up with a line of batteries and, and we're, we're now specifically going after like USB-based batteries um, right now, like um, for USB power. And because and, we see that as a real need, like travel travel battery stuff we're getting into USB-C next so that your like all new computers that are laptops coming out will be with USB-C so we will be able to power up laptops um, and and even other equipment we we have now solar generators too 440 watt solar generators that are LifePo 4 batteries um, that will are just in Nigeria we're running a Bovi machine for me a cauterizer when I was out in um in a village and we did, uh, um, we, we were doing some minor surgeries and stuff. So yeah, it's, this stuff can run a, a lot of things. It's 300 watts. It can run a, anything that's 300 Watts and, and lower. So it's definitely a robust little generator coupled with our 60 watt to hundred watt solar panels. We'll be able to run this stuff. So yeah, it's, it's all great fun stuff that uh, we, we love designing gear now and coming out with it. We have new stuff will be coming out in 217 and we're stoked. So. Well, I, I really liked what I saw at Outdoor Retailer. And, of cool. course, I kind of honed in on the backpacking applications for this. Really lightweight. You don't have to take the battery if you can charge when you're in the sunlight. Circuitry so that it doesn't discharge your device when you get into the shade. It's light. It's compact. It's tough. It's everything I've been looking for, you know, so that I can keep a, a, a camera or a cell phone or whatever charged when I'm away from power for weeks on end. So... I really honed in on that, but the applications in Africa have to be vast. Yes, they are. And every, you know, what, one thing I didn't say uh, that in Sub-Saharan Africa now, everyone has a cell phone. Everyone. The, so, the cell phone networks are great. Um, it's probably one of the only things that work because it's a real capitalist-based uh, system in terms of communication there. They've really opened it up. Um, and so it works. And people are making big time money off of it, and everyone has a cell phone, and everyone's on Facebook, and you know, you name it. You know, I'll get friend requests from everybody I meet. But um, everyone needs to recharge. That's the thing. So, and there's no outlets. <laughs> right. So, so I'll tell you, these are uh, we're starting to sell them in, in in two different places in Nigeria and then Kenya, and they're flying off the shelves. Um, they're expensive for we're trying to subsidize them as best we can, so they're access, accessible. And that's based on the, our U.S. sales or subsidizing the Sub-Saharan Africa sales. Um, but, um, yeah, it's, it, it's pretty fun to see these starting to be used in some really remote areas. So uh, n- not only for U.S. travelers, but just indige people in, in general. So it's great. <laughs> I like what you said there. The U.S. sales are helping to subsidize the African sales. So there's something we can do right now. If we buy some of your stuff here in the U.S., we're helping out in Africa too. Exactly. You, you are in down the road, we, we're going to be focusing on – put it this way. I want to be the, a, a D.C. supplier of, of different um, – um, I, I don't know how much I can go into this, but I want to be able to solve problems with D.C. power for an, a, a sub-Saharan African hut so that people can start bringing uh, – can solving problems – start solving problems within their, their family um, – Stuff like clean water, this is like running water, uh, lighting. Um, they're just clothes washing. Just there's a, a bunch of different things, problems that we can solve uh, that help to help solve um, by creating technology and and uh, like things that will work in the United States and and in Sub-Saharan Africa or even 
parts in Asia. So, yeah, it's, it's fun stuff. You know, when I was in Kenya, one thing that I picked up on was that people are breathing a lot of bad air inside of their huts. They're cooking in there with wood fires. They're using kerosene lanterns because it's the only light they have. And they're breathing some stuff that it just tears up their lungs. You're right. You're so right. Um, so most cooking fires in sub-Saharan Africa are inside of huts. They have these cooking huts in there. Uh, and it's mainly... Um, women generally have a lot of COPD over there and it's not because they smoke. It's because they're, they're cooking and, um, uh, you know, kerosene is, is expensive to a lot of these people and, and, uh, LP gas is definitely expensive. So they're cooking with charcoal and, and wood and the charcoal tr- trade in general is terrible for the environment. It, it, it cuts down a huge, a big part of, 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 um, of jungle in, in sub-Saharan Africa, and it's just, it's terrible for the envi- environment all around, only even to the microenvironment around these women. And they're coming in our clinics with, with COPD all the time. So COPD, uh, chronic, help us out with that. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> chronic obstructed um, airway disease. So, it, you know, it's your, your emphysema, that sort of thing you've seen in the past. From, you know, smoking for, in America, we get it because we're smoking cigarettes, but over there, these women will have it because they've been in their cooking huts and for for years and years and years. It's really too bad. So yeah, that's gosh. If we could start getting these uh, these families away from charcoal, that would be an amazing thing. Uh, away from river water, away from charcoal. Um, if, gosh, if we could figure out those two things, we could really start to to see some good change going on. Well, it sounds like you're well on your way with what you're doing Trying, there with yeah. Core Third. So, how can people get more information? Number one about the organization you have running the clinic, the hospital in Nigeria, and then number two, about Core Third and your products there. Yeah, so, um, you know, uponthisrockmedicalcenter.org is uh, a great place to go, or hit us up on Facebook at uh, UTR Missions on Facebook. And, um, yeah, if you want to donate, great. If you want to come with us, you know, get a hold of me, uh, email me through the website, or you can do Zach, Z-A-C-H, at corethird.com and, and reach out to me about, about Africa and, and come with us. I mean, we, we take, uh, take people all the time. We're also drilling wells. Uh, we have some water sanitization projects going on, some construction projects. Um, we're, we're definitely expanding in 2017 on that. And then the core third side, I'll, I'll give a you know plug here for our products. Um, you know, uh, if you, for your listeners, definitely go and get a um, a thirty percent off discount uh, using the the code MYCORE, no space, just M Y C O R E, to get a thirty percent off discount. And uh, yeah, and all the sales there go to subsidize these products in Sub-Saharan Africa, so they're accessible to um, to uh, people groups that are underserved. And we have our these two uh, retail outlets specifically located in areas so that we can we can hit those people groups. So it's good stuff. Very awesome, Zach. You know, what you're telling me really resonates with me, and I'm sure it does with so many other people who heard this today. Thank you for taking the time to tell your story and for sharing with us real-life adventure that uh, is just amazing to me. So I really appreciate your time today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, You bet. And for all of our listeners out there, you know, I always say, until the next show, get out there and have some fun. But, you know, that fun can be life-changing. It can help other people, and it might change your life too, so make it happen. Hey, thank you so much for listening today. Hope you enjoyed the show. Please do tell your friends about us. We want to make sure that we can help share the word, encouraging others and inspiring people to have great adventures and to make a difference in their world. Thank you. Thank you.